This summer we're talking about the cure for the common soul. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but on this fallen rock and in this flesh, we're going to always struggle with those things that will tempt us, that will sicken our soul. And this morning we're going to talk about jealousy. Jealousy is one of those things that easily sicken the soul. And and most people don't like the topic, but, you know, I really wanted to dig in on this because I have met so many people who were content but then became just devastated and miserable because of jealousy. You know, people always ask me, especially at the weekends, hey, preacher, what, what, what are you preaching on this weekend? And this weekend, you know, it's like, well, I'm preaching on jealousy. And, you know, people kind of give me that look like, huh. I know they're thinking, I wonder where else we could go to church this, this week. <laughs> you know, because jealousy is one of those things that we don't want to listen to it, but we need to hear it. We, we don't want to listen to it, but we need to hear it because we know that we all struggle with jealousy, but we don't want to because it, it means we're immature. It means that we're selfish. It means that we're silly. It means that we're sinners. It means that, that we, we uh, you know, are, are, are focused on ourselves. We know that it's wrong, but we do it anyway. Listen, what jealousy is always going to do, it's going to complicate your life. It's going to complicate your life, your, your mental, emotional, spiritual life. It's going to mess you up. And so, <coughs> excuse me, we've we got to understand what jealousy is. We've got to get a good view of what it looks like. We've got we to accept the antidote, and then we've got to live in it. And that's what I want to encourage you to do. Now, I've thought a lot about this subject this week, jealousy this week, but I haven't spent a lot of time in my lifetime thinking it through, and I've realized this week I've got a lot of thinking to do uh, on this, about what it means and what it means for my life and and how I can counsel and and lead others uh, as disciples of Jesus Christ. But here's the definition I would encourage you to accept. It's the one that I'm holding to right now. Jealousy is ungrateful doubt in God's plan and provision. It's ungrateful doubt in God's plan and provision. Now, where do I get that? Well, back in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are in paradise, and the evil one comes and basically says, hey, God's holding out on you. There's something better, and they become jealous for something better. And so uh, the, the, the evil one, the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the, the tree of good and evil is what's at issue here. And the evil one comes and says, God's holding out on you. There's a better life. And she becomes jealous for this other way of life. Now, what she should have done she, she should have, along with her husband, should have defended the honor of our good and great God. What she should have done is, is say, are you crazy? Our God is, is great and glorious. How dare you? How dare you defy the God Almighty? And should have crushed its head right there, right then. But instead, there was an ingratitude that created doubt. That ingratitude began to doubt God's plan and began to doubt God's provision. And once jealousy took hold and and that desire, well, there was sin. What does jealousy look like in the real world today? 
I think James chapter 4 embarrassingly nails it. Why is it so embarrassing? Because, you know, when you think about it, think about what this is describing. You know, what comes to your mind? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Doesn't that sound like two and three-year-olds fighting over something silly? And that's exactly what jealousy looks like. It looks like immature preschoolers fighting over something that they can't keep, that they ultimately won't want. And that's what happens in the world. Whenever we're jealous, whenever we take our eyes off the Lord, whenever we, we don't stand for His honor and we fall into, them dis, to, into this temptation and that sickness begins to impact our soul, this is what we do. We quarrel, we fight, we, we accuse, we attack because we want. It's all about us. And it's destructive. It's embarrassing. It's terrible. So what's the antidote? Now, when I give you the answer, some of you are going to roll your eyes because the answer is something you've heard of before, and it doesn't sound very sexy. It doesn't sound very exciting. As a matter of fact, it's pretty humdrum and, and, and baptistically biblical, but nonetheless, something you've heard before. But I want you to hang with me because I want to make sure you actually believe what I'm about to say. Make sure that you actually believe what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what I say, what the Bible says. So what is the antidote? It's saving faith in Christ. I know. You've heard that before, right? Well, what do I mean by that? Well, have you thought about it like this? Saving faith, it's confidence in Christ's sufficiency and proficiency. There's two aspects of this I want you to grab and really think through. And, and really decide, do I really believe this? Sufficiency and proficiency. What is sufficiency? It's he's provided everything. What's proficiency? He knows what's best. He knows what's right. He knows exactly what we need. Where do I get this? Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 8 and 9 speak to his sufficiency. Verses 10 speaks to his proficiency. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, speaking of the sufficiency of Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Scripture teaches that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. There's nothing you and I can add to make ourselves more savable or anything that Christ has not done that doesn't fully complete and finalize and meet every need for our soul to be saved. There are what the Scripture calls works. There are no works. There's nothing you and I can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing you and I can do to add to what Christ has done to make us holy and righteous before a holy God. His death and resurrection is the only means for salvation. The only means. And His death and resurrection is completely sufficient for our salvation. The only thing that we bring to our salvation is our sin and our repentance and belief. The work is done by Christ alone. Christ's sufficiency is why we are saved. But not only is Christ sufficient, He is proficient. He knows what's best. He knows what we need going forward. Verse 10 says this, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God already knows the plan for your life. God already knows what's coming down the pike. God knows why He saved you. 
He, know why, he knows why he puts you where he's put you in the world. He's got a plan for your life. He's got provision for your life. He knows exactly what it is you need to fulfill your destiny and to be com completely fulfilled. Now, the only way that we can, we can experience this is through faith. Again, we know the world is not as it should be. God's design was, was harmony. Our sin has created brokenness. Now, our only hope is to repent, and, and that is to turn away from any created thing that we might depend on, including ourselves, and say honestly to God, God, I, don't, I can't trust me for salvation. I'm the one that, that caused the brokenness to begin with. I can't trust in other people because they're just as broken as me. There's no created thing that can satisfy the, the, the necessary atonement for my sin. Only someone and something holy and eternal. So only you, Lord Jesus, can do this. So I repent of trusting in anything or anyone else. And I believe in the gospel. I believe what Christ has done so that I can recover and pursue pursue God's design. The person who is recovering and pursuing God's design, this person is called a disciple of Jesus Christ. A disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who trusts fully in the sufficiency and the proficiency of Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you, is that you? Don't think about it academically. Think about it practically. Do you fully Trust in the sufficiency and proficiency of Christ. Or are you tempted, as we all are, to trust in a created thing? And is there something inside of you that tends towards jealousy? Not trusting because of an ingratitude in the plan and provision of God. Well, understand, those who are disciples of Jesus, we're going to have to fight. Fight to overcome jealousy. And to do that with the Word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways that the Word helps us is in giving us examples. The Apostle Peter is an example of, of what we need to avoid to do. We need to learn from his mistake. And we read about his mistake in the Gospel of John. If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, turn with me now to the Gospel of John, verse, chapter 21. We're going to be in verses 20 through 23. Caitlin's going to read for us. So, Caitlin, come on up. Let's all stand together in honor of God's Word. Again, we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, and we're in verses 20 through 23. Caitlin, read that for us. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Amen. If you would be seated. <clears throat> so what's Peter's problem? This is silly. Why in the world would he be so jealous? I mean, he has plenty to pray about. Go back and look in verse 18, verse 19. Look what Jesus just gave him. He just gave him the Word. The Lord God just told Peter, hey, this is your life. 
This is where you've been. This is where you are. This is how your life is going to end. He just laid out for Peter his future. There was plenty for Peter to pray about. There was plenty for, for Peter to pursue. He had the Lord Jesus right there. Lots to talk about. But instead of that, what does he do? He starts to focus on lover boy, who is the Apostle John, the beloved disciple. You know, the one that would always lean into Jesus. You know, the one who was willing to ask the question on, on the night about who was going to, to turn against him. You know, that one who seems like the real favorite of God that, that Peter was wondering about right there. Peter made a huge mistake, and it's a mistake we, he makes often in the Gospels and that we often make, and that is this. He took his eyes off of Jesus. Think about Peter's life. The first time Jesus revealed to Peter who he really was, first thing Peter does is he takes his eyes off of Jesus and says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips. Rather than focusing on Jesus, who is right there in front of him, offering him a new life, Peter starts focusing on himself, and, and rather than trusting in the sufficiency of Christ, he wants to depend on himself and realizes he can't. So he says, get away from me, God. I, I'm, I, I'm not good enough. I, I'm not worthy. Jesus already knew that. He had already come because he's the sufficient saver. But instead of focusing on him, Peter starts focusing on himself. And then remember the time Jesus starts walking up to the boat, you know, and, and Peter says, Lord, if that's you, call me. And Jesus said, come on, boy, let's go for a walk on the water. And he gets out there, which, hey, a lot to be said about that. How many of us would do that? And he's walking on water, but then the waves and the wind. And what does the Scripture say? But that he took his eyes off of Jesus, put them on the storm, put it on the wind and the waves, and he began to sink. He took his eyes off of Jesus. And whenever we take our eyes off of Jesus, here's what we can know. We're putting them on a created thing. And as soon as we do that, we're always going to be tempted to be jealous. As disciples of Jesus, we have to discipline our lives. And there's three things that our text tells us to do that we can see here on how we can overcome it and apply the antidote, which is saving faith in Christ alone. So when you're a disciple of Jesus, three things you got to do. Disciples of Jesus, first of all, focus on personal responsibility. Again... Jesus just outlined Peter's life for him. He needed to be focused on God's plan and purpose, not worried about John. See, it's an issue of stewardship. See, when we're jealous, what we're doing is we're, we're focusing on what everyone else is getting, what everybody else is doing, and we're not being stewards of our own life. We're not focused on what God has called us to and being responsible with that. Instead, we're being negative, and we're complaining, and we're feeling sorry for ourselves. Right now, I'm just in that mood, and, I, I, and I've done what I tell other people not to do, not to get in arguments on Facebook and Twitter, and I'm doing it, and I'm going to stop today. I've repented of it this morning. You don't have to join my wife and tell me to stop stop. I am done. <clears throat> but here's the deal. I am so frustrated right now with me and with other people complaining. You know, the, I, I see these Facebook posts. Well, you know what the church ought to do. Well, you know what the government ought to do. You know what they should do. You know what y'all should do. You know what? What are you doing? At the end of the day, the easiest thing in the world is to complain about what everybody else isn't doing. You know what the hardest thing in the world to do? 
is to understand that we each have a responsibility to do what we've been called to do, and we just really need to focus on that. I have, a, I have a feeling, I have a sense that if we actually took serious our responsibility, we wouldn't have time to complain about what everybody else isn't doing. We wouldn't have time to complain about what they did do. We would have enough to pray about every single day. So right now, we have a very serious issue going down on our southern border. And everybody's complaining, everybody's talking it up. I love Pastor Jack Graham. He's pastor at Prestonwood. On June 19th, look what he put on Twitter. We at Prestonwood are currently working to provide solutions to care for children during this terrible immigration crisis. Our, that is the Prestonwood Espanol ministry led by Gilberto Correrda, is stepping up to the challenge to express the love of Jesus. We are brokenhearted and determined to act. So you know what they did? They raised tens of thousands of dollars. They didn't ask anybody's permission. They just went down and started clothing and feeding and caring and loving people in the name of Jesus. You know what he didn't do? He didn't get up and preach a sermon about what's wrong with the government, what's wrong with the church, and what everybody else should be doing. You know what he said? We're going to act. We have resources. We're here. Let's take responsibility, and let's do what we're supposed to do. Rather than complain, they chose to act. Listen, it's easy to complain. It's easy to feel sorry for yourself. It's easy to think that if you were in another place, in another position, that you would get it right, rather than focusing on where God's put you and called you to do. You know, parents are right, and, and, and parents, if you're not saying this to your children, start saying this to, to your children. I can remember even, and you know, my parents saying this to me, it's a good word, just worry about yourself. That's a good word. You know, I used to always want to do what my big brother was doing. He was older than me. He was bigger than me. I always wanted to get to go and do what they did. And my mom would say, just worry about yourself. Don't worry about what he's going to do. you got enough to worry about. And that's the truth. God has given us enough to pray about. There's enough on our plate. We don't need to be worried about everybody else, but we're going to be tempted to. So there's two tools I want to recommend that we use to identify things that might create within us jealousy. That is in, that ingratitude of God's plan and provision. The first is the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment. This is uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is, that is your neighbor's. Here's what I mean by this. You need to figure out what tends to make you jealous. And you need to acknowledge it, and you need to deal with it. I mean, there are certain things that are going to make you jealous that won't bother me in the least bit. When we go to Florida, when we go to the beach, I always hear people say, man, I sure would like to own one of these. Not me. You know why? Because I know what happens to things. When you own them, they break. Right? And if something breaks, I am useless unless it needs duct tape. I got duct tape in the Jeep right now. If you've got something that's broke and duct tape will fix it, I'm your man. If you need like screwdrivers and hammers and other technical equipment that they've asked me not to touch anymore, I can't help you. I don't want to own stuff because I, I don't get it. You know, some people, it's cars, not me. Occasionally, occasionally, rarely, my Jeep, of, my beloved Jeep of 15 years will break down, but not usually. And I'll usually borrow a friend's car, and people will typically think that it's nicer than my Jeep. It's not nicer than my Jeep. It's just different than my Jeep. 
Man, that 15, it's just, it's just now has 118,000 miles. It's just broken. It's just warming up. I'm praying to get buried in it. I mean, it's great. Other people's cars, other people's properties. Now, if you've got a bag of M&Ms, I'm interested. I'm a little jealous. I mean, if you got the big five-pound bag, I'm your friend. Now, I'm just using you, but that's still, you know. What causes you to be jealous? You need to know what that is. And here's the other thing. You need to not allow yourself to be fooled. You need to understand you, I, we have blind spots. We need other people that know us well enough that will help guard our hearts. Jesus said this, Luke 12, 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You need to be able to have people in your life who say, look, I know where you're going. I know what you're looking at. I know what you're thinking about. You're going to be tempted to be jealous. Don't do it. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You've got to use those tools. You've got to understand what your temptations are. You've got to focus on your personal responsibility. You've got to stay focused on Jesus. So that's what they do. That's what disciples of Jews write down. Second thing, they follow Jesus. Look at that word, responsively. Jesus does not expect us to come up with our own plans for our lives. As a matter of fact, he already has the plan and purpose. He just wants us to follow him. I know that's a big question. Uh, typically, uh, people are asking when there's a call-in radio show, when there's, when there's an opportunity to ask a scholar or a pastor, you know, one of the questions, one of the big questions that often come up is, how can I know God's plan for my life? I'm about to show you what Scripture says is God's plan for your life. It's, it's not rocket science, friends. It's real simple. What's God's plan for your life? Here it is, Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. For what? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. That's God's purpose for your life, right there. That you would be holy and blameless. Who am I supposed to marry? Someone that helps you be holy and blameless before Him. Who should my friends be? The people that will help you be holy and blameless. What should I do with my afternoon? What should, I, what should I purchase? What should I pursue? Anything that will help you be holy and blameless before Him. It's not rocket science. It's real simple. Now, to do that, it's hard. You got to stay focused on Jesus. So Hebrews chapter 12 says this, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and jealousy is one of those. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before, looking to Jesus. Look to Him. Why? Well, because of who He is, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Say, so how can I look to Jesus? Look to the right hand of God, where the one who died for your sin has been raised and is waiting to return. Keep your eye on Him. Keep your focus on Him. What has He said? He has spoken in His Word. We spend so much time and energy trying to come up with plans. God already has the plan. All we need to do is follow Him. Remember Ephesians 2 verse 10. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He already knows what we're supposed to do. The question becomes, how do I know? How do I know what God's prepared for me? Three simple questions. Where has he put you? 
Did anybody in this room, show of hands, just for, did anybody in this room choose where you were born and when? Yet yeah, all three services, nobody. Did anyone choose the natural abilities that you were born with? Anybody choose those? When you were born again and you were given spiritual gifts, did, did you choose your spiritual gifts? Anybody in the room? Funny, all three services, everyone said the same thing. Didn't choose where I was born, didn't choose my natural ability, didn't choose my spiritual ability. Guess who did? God. You are where God wanted you to be. You are gifted and have abilities as God intended you to have. It's not an accident. He put you in this time for such a time as this. And you know what? He's gifted you with abilities. And you know what he's put in front of you? Opportunities. Opportunities to serve, opportunities to pursue interests. Now look, not everybody has the same passions. Not everyone has the same interests. Here's what, here's what I can tell you, what I've learned about me in life. There are two kinds of knowledge. There's, there's common sense and there's book sense. When it comes to common sense, I am at a negative on that, all right? That's why I married Carrie Beth Pettis, because when it comes to common sense, off the charts, off the charts. That's why when I go outside with a ladder, she follows me. <laughs> now when it comes to book sense, I'm your man. I can read a book. I can explain to you what it says, as long as I can remember where I put it. And that's where my wife comes in, because she remembers where I put all this stuff. And she reminds me, you're supposed to have read this. Remember, you got this going on. Common sense? No. Book sense? Yes. God puts us with people that have different abilities. Understand, we're all different. You have abilities. You, you know intuitively what you're good at because you've already been successful at it to some extent. So what's God's will for your life? To do the good that he's enabled you to, you to do where you are. You have passions. You have abilities. Pursue them. Do them. And what you will find is that God is going ahead of you. He will provide the opportunities, all of it, so that you and I can be more and more like Jesus, so we can be more and more holy. It's easy to think that if we had different circumstances, different gifts and abilities, different people to help us, that, that we would be happy. It was really easy for Peter to look over and say, well, what about John? You know, the one that, that you really love, the beloved? You know, the one that was leaned up against you the night before you died? You know, that one that seems like the favorite? And I love Jesus' response. What's it to you? You follow me. And let me remind you of something. John didn't get a better deal than Peter. John ends up on the Isle of Patmos all by himself after taking years of persecution. His life wasn't any easier. And here's what I want you to understand about everybody's life that you see on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and on TV and everything else. Everybody is fighting something. Don't think for a moment that you want somebody else's life because here's what I can tell you about everybody. Almost everybody says, my battle is real. My battle hurts. My battle is hard. And you're not gifted or prepared to fight their battle. You're gifted and called to fight your battle and God's allowed it to make you holy. So be thankful. Be grateful in God's plan. Be grateful in God's provision, and you will not fall into jealousy. You will experience the saving faith, and when you do that as a disciple of Jesus, you're going to have to do the third thing, and that's this. Find the truth responsibly. 
God's people were not responsible. Look at verse 23. Read that for just a second. Read that. It's kind of a weird kind of like, why did they say that? Why is that so important? Why did that need to be in God's word? Here's the deal. I read a commentator that said there's actually a cult that still exists that still thinks that the Apostle John is still alive because this text was taught wrongly. As disciples of Jesus, we need to know God's Word, we need to be accurate with God's Word, share it plainly, and we need to obey God's Word. Bob Mounts is right. Dr. Mounts said this, the human mind has an incredible ability to create evidence in support of what it has already decided to believe. We need to let the Bible speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible's silent. There's, there was in the 19th century, there was in the middle of the 20th century, and there is now again today a call for God's people to not believe in the Old Testament. That God is too scary, and we can't explain Him, and so let's just, let's just ignore that. Let's just act like it's not there. Friends, that is wrong. We don't have to defend the Bible. We just need to understand it, obey it, and share it plainly. I like what Spurgeon says about the Bible. Here's what we need to do with the Bible. The Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. We don't have to apologize for who the God of the Bible is. The God of the Bible will defend himself. We just need to be honest and accurate about what the Bible says. How people respond to it, that's on them. That's on the Spirit of God. Our responsibility is to dig in and know the Word of God. Share the Word of God plainly. Obey the Word of God. Adam and Eve failed. Adam and Eve failed. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. They sinned. Why? Because they did not believe and act on the Word of God. They denied the authority of Scripture. Here they were in paradise, denying the Word of God, and they failed. You know who succeeded? Jesus Christ. Do yourself a favor and go back and read Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 today. And remember, he wasn't in the plush paradise. He was in the desert after 40 days without food. He was hungry. He was tired. He was tempted. And you know what he did? He quoted from Moses' last sermon. To defeat Satan, he quoted directly from the book of Deuteronomy. How was he able to do it? He studied it, he obeyed it, and he shared it plainly. Because of his knowledge of the Word of God, he was able to be victorious. And that's how you and I will be victorious. We have to get used to digging into the Word of God. We have to get used to simply obeying the Word of God, even when we don't necessarily like it. And we got to share it plainly. We don't have to apologize for it. We just have to say what it says. And mom and dad, that starts with you at home. You've got to train your children to know and to believe and to obey the Word of God. And you know the best way to do that is for you 
to know and believe and obey the Word of God. Don't give them this business of, Pastor Jason says do it, so you need to do it. They ain't going to buy that. You know what they'll do? They'll do what you do. Are you a student of, an obedient disciple of, a plain sharer of the Word of God? Then don't expect your children to be. Our children need to know the Word of God. Mom and dad, teach them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we've got to know the Word of God. We don't need to apologize for it. We just need to share it plainly and obey it. That is our greatest defense against jealousy and against all sin. But here's what I know. Some of you are not disciples of Jesus, and as such, you have no chance against jealousy and all these other things we've been talking about that are sickness to your soul. Your only hope is to repent and believe in Jesus, and you can do that today. Some of you are struggling with jealousy this morning. And what you need to understand is all you're doing is being ungrateful and you're doubting God's plan and provision. And here's what you need to do. You just need to be real honest and tell Jesus, Jesus, I've taken my eyes off you. I'm focused on everybody else and everything else. I'm complaining. I'm negative. I'm angry. Forgive me. And ask him to help you get your eyes back on Jesus. Leaders, grab your bulletin and let's pray for revival. Let's stand together as we pray. Lord God, you are good. Your word is true. Jesus, you have accomplished everything necessary for us to be satisfied and saved. You are sufficient and proficient. And so, Lord, would you now allow those who don't believe to believe? I pray for some right now who are not Christians that they will get on their knees, repent and believe, and be saved. I pray for brothers and sisters who need to be honest with you and say, Lord, I've I've been ungrateful. I'm, there's jealousy in my heart. I'm focused on every, everybody else. I'm not, I'm not grateful and I'm not pursuing what you've given me, given me to do and be. And I need your help. So, Lord, help them. And, Lord, as, as we pray for revival, hear us as we pray. Come and pray.